These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. talking about something more fun our heroes getting high on mushrooms da, 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 da. so yeah oh oh wow okay bringing up um super mario here yeah exactly in comparison between chapter 14 chapter 15 starts bringing in some of the more fun aspects again by the end of like okay how are we going to solve our problems I know. Let's get really fucking high. <laughs> Nothing bad so, can come out of that. So essentially, James's three-point plan here of like, okay, well, we need to save the world. Step one, take some drugs. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You mentioned that you love this chapter. Oh, I do. And uh, I, I have to agree with that overall, but... Mm. The irony behind all of this is that this chapter is almost a little bit of a microcosm for Mm. a good portion of the story, but also new century in general. This is starting to feel like a bottle episode. Again with the TV crap. It's able to crystallize the humorous aspects of the story, the Mm. insightful aspects of the story, and the dark aspects of the story, all within Abigail and James's experience of uh, expanding their minds with shrooms. Hmm. It takes you on a trip, and more specifically, a new century trip, which mm-hmm. means that you know you're going to have some laughs, but you're also going to feel emotions. So, little wonder that both in and out of the text, we all get a little bit teary. As Greg says, I love this chapter. Before even getting into anything to do with mushrooms, it has at the start a line and read so good that Alex used it in the trailer for Steamheart, which is There is a force at work inside my body which I must unlock. Will you teach me? Of course I will. You're the child of the prophecy. Really? No! (laughs) (laughs) It's it's perfect. It's my go-to line now anytime I just want to like roll my eyes at any talk about like prophecies or fate in various things so it's great i love that moment and yes well chosen for the trailer but getting back to the subject of hand which is drugs it is another fun isolated episode idea to build up the grander tapestry of this epic journey we're all putting together here while you could deflate the emotional elements of the chapter by jokingly referring to it as being to Steamheart what Mushroom Samba is to Cowboy Bebop. Though I'm honestly not joking in that comparison and absolutely expect to be bringing up that potential influence again before too long. I can see the idea of the crew of the Bebop and this ragtag collection of characters definitely having that sort of twinge of Firefly that Alex may have drawn one or two things from. I had no familiarity with Cowboy Bebop. 
so I actually took a moment to look up and learn about Mushroom Samba, which was easy to do considering it's the name of the Cowboy Bebop episode. There's an amusing synchronicity in that the episode begins with an argument over who ate the last available food, therefore echoing the point of contention behind the episode of Community I took that bottle episode quote from. However, Toby bringing up this parallel, plus a reference to the cactus juice of the last airbender, made me think of a related piece of review media both Toby and I follow. I was re-listening to an episode of OSP, uh-huh. which was specifically the Greatest Fears episode. Yeah. And before she talks about that experience, wherein an episode of a piece of media will highlight the greatest fears of our characters. The idea of this is the episode where all of our heroes get really high. That's another example of what Red would refer to as stock episodes in terms Mm -hmm. of like, this is the episode where they have a dream sequence. This is the episode where they're trapped in a claustrophobic environment. It doesn't this is the episode where we all shrink down and go inside somebody to cure them. Why is this a trope? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so everyone getting high is an opportunity for us to learn more about the characters through what they say when all their inhibitions hmm. are down, basically. Yeah, it, it's an opportunity to not only get your characters to have some comedy, but as you say, to get their inhibitions down, which leaves them quite vulnerable, and also to encourage introspection and Mm -hmm. just fun visuals and sensory things that people will enjoy. So it's... That's actually a major component of Red's episode on The Greatest Fears, is the importance of introspection. And fear is one of those things which can help people to look more closely at themselves. Hmm. That's obviously a major component of this episode as well. It reveals things to Frank and Annie that they didn't necessarily know about their friends. Mm. And it, it it's fuel, as we'll see later on in the story, mm. for James and Abigail to think more deeply about themselves through mm. what they were then able to make as text, stuff that they weren't necessarily comfortable with looking at too closely in terms of their own musings when their inhibitions aren't lowered one observation before we continue i appreciate the sly reference to lord of the rings in the chapter's title which is just a shortcut to and it like cuts itself off there which you know it could be interpreted as referring to the unknown and unexplored spiritual and cosmic inner depths that the endowments are twinned with, which the mushrooms are intended as a shortcut towards making those spiritual meditative journeys to understand these vast hidden depths and astral landscapes. But the hanging implication is also that this is in fact a shortcut to mushrooms, which was a fun chapter title in Lord of the Rings during the early part of The Hobbit's journey out of the Shire. The film for Fellowship even name-checks it when Mary indignantly affirms to Sam that, oh, this was a detour, a shortcut. And when Sam asks what the shortcut was to, Pip excitedly exclaims, Mushrooms! I did not know that. I've mentioned many times how when I was younger I was more about books than I was about TV or movies. You can read a book by yourself, after all, and don't have to compete with anybody else in the house. 
but of the many books I devoured when I was young, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were not among them. I tried reading those much later in life, and kind of bounced off J.R.R.'s writing style. Ergo, it wasn't till the early 2000s that I finally saw the entirety of The Lord of the Rings, and because the books were a distant memory, I did not realize that that one scene in Peter Jackson's Fellowship was a reference to the books. The name of this chapter always just sort of confounded me a little bit and be like, okay, how do I interpret this? So the fact that you picked up on that particular literary detail there, very happy that you're able to school me Hmm. on that. School of literary references. (laughs) Yay! You know, and I think it's both fun and appropriate that at an early stage of Alex's epic journey book, when our characters are able to get into relatively harmless scrapes and fun misadventures like this that he name checks a similarly toned moment at a similar point in the structure of one of his abiding influences it encourages you to put yourself into the mindset of going on this kind of journey and you can't help but feel a bit of a joyous like uptick when you feel like oh yeah like this is a bit like that that's great i'm ready for more of this grand adventure it is important to note as we have done before that moments like this are Easter eggs. Toby understood the sly reference, and I didn't. But neither way of experiencing the story is wrong. Alex is like every writer, putting in little things that reward the informed or observant. But if it's done right, it won't make those that aren't in the know feel left out. We're getting sidetracked. You brought up the idea of this being an important character piece. Mm. And one of the unexpected aspects of that is, before we even get to the whole psychedelic experience of Abigail and James on Mushrooms, we start to learn more about Raven. And the revelation that Raymond is, or technically was a shaman, but absolute shit at it, is perfect <laughs> in so many ways, because it is a clever puncturing of traditional tropes. Just as when you include black women or Asian men in a media property, they tend to occupy very specific narrative roles, or more accurately, tired, overused characterizations. And the same is true whenever you bring a Native American into a story. It kind of makes Raven's overall character coalesce in a manner that shows exactly why diversity is important. If Raven was a white man, he'd be far too much like the men he resembles. Hunter Thompson or Spider Jerusalem, if you're a fan of Transmetropolitan. But at the same time, that makes his persona one that is far outside the quote-unquote noble tracker warrior or the wise shaman we usually see Native Americans inhabit. Mm. And his irritation at Thomas making those same assumptions is the kind of author insert commentary that makes us clap our hands as being a little cherry on top on uh, mm. the fact that that's, this is alluded to as a part of the text of the story. I think this might be something that you mentioned that did make me realize that technically the first Native American character we are told about in New Century is actually a tracker warrior in Cartoon. Oh, right. Book. Toby is, of course, referring to Azcook, the Cree warrior that worked alongside Lawton Sadler during the cartographer's account in the handbook. 
We, of course, understand that Alex didn't mean any offense by this. Toby pointed out in a side conversation, Alex was just trying to show cooperation and respect between disparate peoples as a part of the M.O. of the Cartographer's Handbook and New Century as a whole. But I also have to wonder if Alex looking back on this was the reason that his second Native American character was deliberately going to play against those traditional tropes. This also leads into a second talking point that Toby wanted to address in response to my outline notes. I want to first address something important about the nature of Alex's performance as Raven. Due to the limitations of his production scale, but certainly not through any shortcoming on his own willingness and efforts to actively seek out more appropriate casting, we do find ourselves in a position where a Native American character is voiced by a white man. That's something to acknowledge, and neither I nor, I suspect, Alex would want to go to bat in excessive defense of this and make a lot of excuses that distract from the point. Equally, I shouldn't speak for Alex either, so I won't make any definitive comments on that area other than my reaffirmation in my own trust and faith in his ongoing goals to get representation of underrepresented people into his stories. It is made repeatedly evident to me that Alex prioritizes not only this, but an emphasis on each of his characters as being specifically who they are, rather than stand-ins who take the weight of representing all people who share their ethnicity, gender identity, sexuality, and more. Raven is Raven, and his perspective is important for us to have present, but he isn't the definitive word on the Native American experience within or outside of this series. And this chapter makes plain that Raven would resent the idea of us pinning that misplaced expectation onto him. When trying to include diversity in your story, one can see there are different thresholds one has to meet, depending on what kind of media it is. A book has it comparatively easy, in that you merely have to write diverse characters while not presenting them as stereotypical versions of that minority. New Century qualifies for the next level of complexity, however, because Alex wanted to go on to make it into an audio drama. Now it's not enough to merely work towards inclusivity and get sensitivity readers. You also want to try and get diverse actors voicing those roles. During Phase 1, Alex has stated the primary goal was to find actors that he could rely on, ones that would be willing to play characters that would come back again and again, but a limited budget also meant that a lot of the time, he would be voicing a number of these roles himself. In Phase 2, he worked harder at meeting that new threshold, seeking out voices like Felix Quist and Shanta Parasuraman to play non-white characters. But at the end of the day, he is still a one-man operation, creating art with a comparatively small amount of money in comparison to studios creating TV and movies. He doesn't have the resources to merely write and direct, so complete parody will never be reached. Given the givens, many audience members, including myself and Toby, want to credit him for the amount of inclusion he has managed. That may not be enough for all audience members, and each person will have their own opinion on the matter. We merely want to make sure to include these facts as a part of the conversation 
so that people feel heard. Having said all of that and bringing us back to the point of this moment in the story rather than just meta discussion, I think it's an important point of this scene, even if it's somewhat lessened in the literary version of the story, that both characters are voiced by the author himself. Alex gets to voice this particular critique on ethnic stereotypes through Raven's words. But because he inhabits James in this scene as well, Mm. to me it comes across as an acknowledgement of his own limitations and a capacity to make mistakes, even as he and James strive to practice understanding and engagement with Raven and the Native American people in his stories. By tying Thomas to this development as well, through Raven concluding that he put him on this mission with the hidden agenda of putting him in this situation, it has another author-voiced character associated with this story beat, potentially acknowledging that as the author, Alex has engineered this situation in the same way that Thomas has. As such, it's so important that Raven gets to emphasise the weight and respect to be afforded to shamans, and make it clear that he is not an expert just because he has this cultural connection and this awareness of it. It's something that I think is important to just say that, like, look, just because you know someone who is closer to this particular thing than you are, you should not expect them to be that. That disrespects the individual. It also disrespects the actual tradition itself. So Mm. I think it's a great subversion of the idea of approaching someone who you expect to have this shamanistic insight and you know from a story perspective him to say no i i don't really know all that much going into it 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 would be like if luke goes to meet the great master yoda and he meets that puppet and he goes i don't know man like uh take some drugs see what happens like uh, there's a cave over there. there's some weird shit in there It, it so it's a fun subversion of that but it also i think is wholly appropriate to this character and the wider sensibilities and situation going on here. So two responses to all of that. First off, this isn't the first time that we have talked about Alex having conversations with himself through the medium of his writing. Just revisit our discussions on the confrontation of Thomas and Seth, if you need a reminder. In point of fact, even though the audio drama has many different voices that are not his, Alex has mentioned that many major players in New Century contain parts of his psyche. In some ways, the writing process could be considered for many as not merely being a creation of entertainment and art, but also a way for those same minds to externalize their own internal arguments and ideas and concerns. The creation of art is always a reflection on the creator. It's just that some artists work towards making it text, rather than merely subtext. So I can appreciate Toby's point here, while also adding that in a different world with different resources available to him, Alex would have been more than happy to have a Native American man voicing Raven. If you go back to our interview of the Shaws on the more recent book Uncivil Outlaw, he put a lot of effort into trying to find a Native voice for a Lakota woman in that book. And when he was unable to do it in a timely manner, at least got feedback from other Native people on what she would say and how she would say it. In the meantime, we can appreciate how the audio drama version we have of the story makes the metaphor of this conflict more obvious. 
the second point that I wanted to come to was specifically that while it is important to denote that Alex does not have the personal experience of being a shaman, one of the significant parts of Raven's characterization during this chapter is that even though he doesn't necessarily have spiritual insight that would come with being connected to the world on a certain level that allows shamans to provide feedback or insight into a world that is beyond what we see, it doesn't change the fact that Raven is able to provide wisdom. Mm. He doesn't necessarily think of himself as a font of wisdom, and that's why he says that he's a shit shaman. But Mm. Raven is more than one thing. It's just that usually he provides wisdom through the tools of his writing. He's a Mm. journalist, so that tends to be the medium by which he provides his insights. And yet, even though he tries to absent himself from the journey that James and Abigail are going on in this episode, he still takes a moment to help Abigail through this difficult part where she's coming down from the high and Mm. offering up a level of compassion that we don't expect from him because of his gruff tendency to be cynical about everything. In this moment, he is not necessarily uncynical, but he is being compassionate to her and offering something outside of general platitudes because we can tell that this is something that he has told himself. He is trying to offer up something something that Abigail needs to hear that he himself has found useful. Only after listening to my words during the edit, and thinking about it in context, do I have some fresh insights about Raven and why it is that he makes a good journalist and a bad shaman. The two vocations require similar skill sets that diverge in specific ways. Both put a great emphasis on communication, being able to say the right thing in the right way to inform and inspire thought. Raven even talks about how his newspaper orients itself towards thinkers, the ones that keep ideas unkillable. But there is a big difference between inspiring this at a remove and doing it in person. Being a journalist allows Raven to offer up wisdom, sometimes in the most blunt of ways, but all without ever having to do it face to face. Not that he's necessarily against being blunt face to face, We've seen it in his interactions with Thomas and Abigail. But Raven doesn't seem to be as good about being softer, empathetic. He tells Abigail to her face, all people are people people, just some aren't personable persons. And Raven is clearly someone that keeps distance between himself and others. Interviewing someone for a piece of writing is one thing, but getting too close, that makes him uncomfortable. You can hear it in the way Raven speaks to Abigail when she's in her fit of crying. He offers it up hesitantly, maybe even almost in self-defense, due to the way her emotionality cuts through his armor. The very things that would be needed of a shaman or holy man or counselor 
are the things he's not good at. It would require him to be vulnerable in a way that he's clearly trying to avoid, given the way he was drowning himself in drink after the emotions that came up at the Smithsonian. But that's all I can say based on what's been revealed so far. Let's get back to the original conversation and hear what Toby has to say. Compared with other sage characters that we've engaged with thus far in New Century, Raven comes across as being much more, you know, down here in the muck with the rest of us than some of the other examples. Sure, all wisdom voiced through characters in New Century feels born out of lived experience, so there's no character, even the most otherworldly and truly mystical, that who comes across as being entirely removed from reality. The example that comes to mind is one who was written at this point, but who originates in Princess Thieves. So, you know, we'll get to them soon enough. Raven confesses that he's not all that when it comes to playing the role of the wise man, a pillar for people to come and to and seek reassurance in both the personal and the profound. He opens the door for Abigail and James to step through, gives informed enough estimations of what to expect, and when they come back through the door and hit the hard floor of reality with a troubling impact, he doesn't offer an answer to what to do to sort out all of the mess of coming back to this plane of existence. Instead, he encourages Abigail to focus on what she can take from the experience that made her feel free from all of this. It's an imperfect setup, and Raven salvages what he can. It's good enough, not perfect, and it's a fitting insight to be offered from him for this moment. Yeah. He's had his own things to deal with, which we will learn more about as the story progresses. But saying more than that for now would be spoilers. So from here, we move on to our next talking. One of the significant aspects of this chapter, where I was, we were talking about the idea of the montage set to music for chapter 14. Here, since part of it is set through the experience of literally recording what's happened on a real time aspect through the Vox tube, if this was being represented in a visual medium, we'd almost feel like it's being shot on a handheld sort of uh, mm. Blair Witch Project or Cloverfield style. Obviously, they wouldn't have handhelds back then, so they wouldn't actually be able to do that. But that's the feel of this particular moment, the way mm. it jumps between significant conversations while the two of them are high on mushrooms. Just as we alluded to earlier, there are humorous aspects to it as well as emotionally difficult parts, as well as mysterious parts, the two of them running the gamut of giddy joy and fascination to deep depression as they're reflecting on those darker moments that we've seen dramatized in secret rooms. So the choice to frame the chapter through the Vox tube was inspired, again, immersing us in the experience of not only the two of them having this change of focus through the psychotropic experience of the mushrooms, but also planting us as being the audience, much like Annie and Frank, trying to provide support for their friends while dealing with these difficult 
experiences that they themselves are not in the middle of, but witnessing James and Abigail in the same way that we are witnessing all of it together. Mm. The Vox recordings format accomplishes two things with the tone of this sequence of scenes. First, it enables skimming around between different points of the evening as one tape ends and another begins. We don't have to sit through and stay with them for the whole ride. We just sort Mm -hmm. of see the core bits, which helps provide a sense of the whole scale of the trip without keeping us in one point for too long as we get to see the eclectic range of things these two see, talk about, and feel. And it also makes it feel a bit more disorientating and kind of makes us feel a bit like we're sort of getting secondhand giddiness just from, like, the places they go to, including Mm -hmm. carrots. Uh... (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, in a more modern setting, we'd be like Twinkies or, you know, some kind of just like snack or bacon or something like that. But here, the foodstuffs that they have available to themselves are limited, which is why James gets fixated on carrots, which don't mm. ex- sound very exciting to you and I, but under this framing, we understand that, like, okay, carrots are what we have, so let's go mm. with carrots. Yeah. Anyway, personally, I've already had her. I mean, them. Why do they say her? <laughs> Again, this is going to be having something we got to cut out because <laughs> nobody except Alex is going to get that joke. Oh, oh, I, I will fight you if you cut that out. That is a, uh, <laughs> I deliberately set that so that uh, that would not spoil a joke for later. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, so the second thing it helps is it situates our experience listening to this as being the outsider looking in while a couple of friends we're hanging out with go on a trip as you yourself were going into. We could have framed this much more from the point of view of James and Abigail themselves with narration from them that conveys the fluid cosmic and emotional logic of the experience they go through and We do get that, thanks to the writing being able to balance clarity of communication of what these two are feeling as they go through this with a fun, off-kilter feeling of them being progressively out of their gourd. But the recordings of the Vox Tubes puts us in the viewpoint of Frank, Annie and Raven without the need to check in with any of those three at all during the sequence because like, they're not there to sort of speak and participate they're there to kind of supervise mm-hmm. they respond to the two when prompted etc but like you know they're there as they write it out and that's what the vox tubes do for us they place us in the role of overseeing these events impartially from the outside so that we can see them as they are rather than how they feel to james and abigail something i wonder because Alex has gone on the record repeatedly about not being comfortable with alcohol. I'm sure I remember Alex sharing a story at one point of like a moment at like a work thing where just one of the people he attended it with, it just was very uncomfortable. So yeah, Mm. whatever the nature of it, it's quite understandable that to be off put by that. And yeah, yeah. But the thing that comes to mind here is that it's probably easier for Alex to write about 
seeing the experience from the outside rather than writing it directly from Abigail and James' perspective if he himself has not had altered state experiences. More than once, Alex has mentioned issues with pain or sleeplessness, or sometimes both, that might have left him in unusual headspaces. But as someone that has gotten very drunk and very stoned, there is likely a qualitative difference to the experience. Never mind the symptom that we usually associate with drugs, the lowering of inhibitions. Obviously, you know, how much we remember of those moments might make it difficult to write about being there in that time, mm. unless he himself, like, recorded <laughs> recorded him tripping out on mushrooms uh, or acid right, or something else. All right, Sharon, this is going to be a fun recording session. <laughs> <laughs> the Keeping framing... the voice would be impressive under those circumstances. My favorite story about being high on pot was at one point that we were watching a movie that I really was not enjoying. And so mm. therefore my natural inclination would be like, okay, if I'm not enjoying this, then I should just get the remote and I should change it to something else that I would enjoy. Mm. But I was so, my body was feeling so heavy that I couldn't even manage to like pick my arm up to get the remote. So literally all I could do was feel like I was melting into the couch and watching a movie that I hated and being unable to do anything about it. <laughs> For those that are curious, the movie was Step Brothers with Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. Well, that sounds like a time. I won't say positive or negative. Like, it was definitely an experience know. I wouldn't have had through any other means. Yeah. I mean, full disclosure, I haven't partaken in any, like, really any drugs beyond alcohol, really. Uh, and alcohol is, uh, it affects your state of being, so it's just, like, a drug we decided was legal. So, it's, like, it's difficult for me to, like, describe the accuracy of it, but I don't think that's really necessary for this. It's just, like, okay, how does this benefit this? And I think, like we said, it's not just that they're vulnerable, it's that, that it's a very unglamorous vulnerability. It's like mm. you're hearing awful sounds that I don't really want to know how Alex got those <laughs> on recording. I don't think all of it came from him, but nevertheless, the fact that it blurs the line, I think, is accomplishment enough. A, a moment of this that I think is pertinent is that this is technically the first point at which we hear Abigail and James confess their feelings for one another honestly mm. but we hear within the space of the same chapter something that complicates that which is that when at that particular moment they mean it when they're unclouded from all of the incumbent shit that you deal with and you accumulate as life goes on once Lucy re-enters the conversation. They just get pulled apart again. Also, another thing that complicates it, I think we as the audience can tell that when Abigail says it to James, there's a quite a degree of sincerity there. Mm -hmm. But then Abigail goes on to, and this is kind of comedic, basically say, I love you to like everyone else who's present. Basically just sort of hitting on both 
Frank and uh, Annie, which it's adorable that uh, Frank gets a little bit like sort of flustered, flustered. I think, yeah. uh, at that. But uh, also notably, just because we can't help ourselves and we keep uh, bringing up moments that hint at something, she says, and where's Harry? I need to tell her. What do you need to tell her? <laughs> Yeah, I, it's it's not we're not being subtle at this point, um, yeah, in the idea that it. this this <laughs> may culminate in something down the road. Mm. But that's just like mm. you know, these are the details. We're, we're not giving anything but away. We're just like, oh, it's this becoming detail. more yeah. and more text. It would be like it would be like us ignoring the elephant in the room. So yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hey, we call them like we see them. Yeah, it's true. It was right around here that we needed to stop for the day because I was not feeling well during our first recording session. But because that leaves us with a 36-minute episode, and that's just not cricket, I'm going to include part of our next recording session, since we're not actually done talking about this chapter anyway. The only thing that I will add before we move on is that as much as Abigail's emotional expression is played for comedy, it's also most in character with her as a person. This isn't like Bill Hicks that talks about his experience with drugs, allowing him to see that all humanity is connected, and then the next second talking about how people are generally assholes. When Abigail tells Annie and Frank that she loves them, this isn't just a teasing wink to her bisexuality. On some level, she means it. That said, let's move on to our next topic, which is how Steamheart deals with inclusion of plot elements from other stories. Apologies up front, because for some reason my voice quality sounds less good than usual, and I'm not sure why. Obviously, for when this was originally written, Alex didn't necessarily have to worry as much about spoiling things, because Steamheart stopped and started, and stopped and started, and then he wrote three other novels, and then he finally picked back up where he left off. So, in theory, hmm. when this chapter refers to, or this chapter and the next chapter actually, refer to things that are the province of another book, yes, he doesn't say everything, just in the offhand that someone read this book without reading The Princess Thieves, hmm. but I think he splits the difference a little bit in terms of revealing things that are important to proceed with the story while keeping other things secret. Whenever you're dealing with telling a story in general, people, especially in this day and age with cinema sins, but also a host of other people with their podcasts and their YouTube shows and all kinds of other content out there, reviewing, discussing tropes, discussing the structure of stories. We all know to a certain extent that there are ways that stories tend to go, and the whole tired aphorism of there's nothing new under the sun, every story's already been told. So there are things that we can often expect from the way a story is built, and yet the importance, as always, and we should appreciate that most in this story, is that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. 
Okay, Greg, I'm I'm gonna have to say we have to have a tally of the number of times we say that for this particular story. You can apply that to most new century books, but absolutely this one. <laughs> absolutely this one. Yeah, exactly. But, that here here the journey is the text. It's not yes. simply a meta text. And on that point, something that occurred to me, which is not in our prepared notes, but actually just something that is coming off the cuff and ignore the fact, uh, Greg, that I'm not wearing any cuffs, but roll with <laughs> me here. Maybe it was deliberate. Maybe it was a happy or profound coincidence. But we were talking earlier how our heroes quite early on in their journey are coming to a kind of a grinding halt with mm. everything that's going on with the news of the assassination of the Arlingtons. That Oh no, you've spoiled it. We haven't gotten to the assassination yet, but no, I understand. Yes. Yeah. We're just getting started and now suddenly we're encountering an obstacle. Mm -hmm. But that actually reminds me of a similar situation. Mm which was Alex's own process of writing of Steamheart. Mm -hmm. He was, he had started it. He was spending time on the chapters of the preparation and leading into it, but he was encountering difficulties writing it. So he had to set it down for a time, go away, do some thinking, spend that time writing a whole different story and then pick it back up again after some time. And I can't help but wonder if the feelings here of just the feeling of sudden inertia after this soaring feeling of hope and optimism might be a way for him to vent some of those feelings that he mm. had at one point in the development of this story of ambitions for a journey that you know the importance of, but so early on you encounter a lot of mental resistance to it just because of the difficulties you face before you even get started. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate that as a metaphor. And as a result, when chapter 15 and chapter 16 are including stuff that is directly alluding to the princess thieves, in some ways it almost feels like it's giving credit to the story that he had to write before he could finish this one. Mm. You know more about whatever issues he was having at the time, and I think at least some of them might have been literally his wrist, as you say, that might have been contributing to all of the audio editing that he was mm. having to do and everything like I, that. I think that a large part of it just came down to the format that he had been working with at the time where he was writing as he was going uh, but because uh, yes. of the scale of this project and how like many different things he knew he wanted to weave together how difficult that was to be doing that as he was going i know very soon after that he started his current practice which is just paid dividends with mm -hmm. each and every subsequent installment in new century but I think that he may have actually written a great portion of Steamheart by the time he got back into the audio editing for mm. the episode. So, yeah, I think that was the biggest part of it at the time. 
because that's the other thing is obviously the exact content of these two chapters, given that it's alluding to this mysterious M who is supposedly on the other side of the ocean and dreams about a girl pulling out a sword and all these other mysterious references. This couldn't have been a part of what he was writing beforehand because it hadn't been created yet. No, 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 no. Uh, Princess Thieves had been created at this point. Oh, really? I thought Princess Thieves had been... Like, he started work on Steamheart first and then stopped and wrote the Princess Thieves, let them nope. go, and... Oh, really? I, I was there. I, I remember when Princess Thieves episodes were coming out, and that was when I was going through New Century. I was I got into and caught up to the end of New Century content at a point in The Princess Thieves when it was sort of current episodes were coming out, and there was a point where I wasn't sure if the story was you know over yeah i i thought it was over and you may know what i'm talking about but we'll keep that mm, mm, mm. and then you know it wasn't over and it kept going and then steamheart was later and huh. i even yeah so no princess thieves was like done by the time so we knew we really did know who what this was referring to we were very much in Jeremy's mm. point of view where we had a better idea than most of the other members of Team Steam what was going on across the pond. Mm. I've mentioned a couple of times that way back when Toby and I were first putting together Through the Windor, Alex shared with me a piece of a spreadsheet that outlined the exact dates when work on the various stories began and ended. And referring back to that spreadsheet now, I can see that Toby is absolutely right. Work on the Princess Thieves began May of 2016 and ended February of 2017. Steamheart started up the month after that, but took a break in May of 2017, and the creation and release of The Christmas Thieves and Let Them Go were what happened in between. Episodes of Steamheart started being released again in November of 2018, after Alex added a bunch of the chapters originally intended for Steamheart to Secret Room's Definitive Edition. I think I got confused based on something Alex said in the past and would have realized I made a mistake had I just gone back to the spreadsheet. And one of the other things that you mentioned, of course, was the fact that at one point, part of chapter 16 refers to something that the very cover of The Princess Thieves would be giving away. But you also said that the original cover for The Princess Thieves looked very different as well. Yes, for the longest time, we didn't actually have what turned out to be the final artwork of the cover. I won't necessarily go into specifics, but mm -hmm. uh, we had artwork of a character striking a pose that mm -hmm. felt very fitting for them. So it didn't feel as if the artwork was missing some key extra detail or something like that, because like what we saw them doing matches what they are established to be like and what they like doing from very mm -hmm. early on in the story. So it was just like, yeah, that that's totally the right pose for them. Mm -hmm. And then later on, we get the cover that feels very like, oh, yeah. Finally, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. So Okay, so a, it, was a, it, a little, it was a little bit more like the experience of releasing the entirety of Back in Time plus Space 
and then not seeing the cover until the yeah. very end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, okay. it was exactly like that. It's, mm. it's a strange thing. It's one of those aspects of the story that is kind of contained to a specific time and place. Like, mm. it's not something that is easily recreated because you go in with, like, the poster in mind or mm. things like that. And that's as it should be. We shouldn't strive to replicate something that was a bit like lightning in a bottle, that just existed at a particular moment. Because, you know, the context in which, and the frameworks we engage with stories, and stories that have already come out, will change. And, heck, Alex, he's been the person who has been most willing to embrace improvements, revisions, after the fact, with his own work. Not excessively, just like to tidy it up. So I remember Secret Rooms as it used to exist. And Mm -hmm. now I see it as it presently exists. And the original version was how I first engaged with the story. So I do have some fondness for it. The new version is absolutely better. I have the tier lists of new century stories and Secret Rooms would have only gone so high as it originally existed but with the definitive edition it stands in the A tier for me so I'm very happy with that I don't have much of a point with this it's just a fascinating meta experience (laughs) that you could totally write a paper on about the different ways the story is received and how you can't really replicate those moments but that's not really a deal breaker because as has often been the case with people, spoilers are a bit of a nebulous term. It suggests that knowing that key detail about the story will spoil it in its entirety. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it spoils the story. It spoils any sort of uncertainty you might have going up to us, like moment when that thing you now know will happen happens. And it was expected that you wouldn't have that certainty going into that point. I think that that's not really the case that that will ruin it. If that's the case, then I think that the story didn't have enough going on to hook you. Because That that is definitely something that Alex talks about a lot, is that the unexpected plot developments should be enjoyed, Mm. but if the surprise is all it has going for it, then you haven't really written something that lasts you know Mm. it's just something to take the audience aback and like get them to pay attention because something happened that they didn't expect necessarily i feel to a certain extent there's a quality about that that suggests everybody is so jaded that the only way you'll get an audience to enjoy your thing is if you surprise them and there not... we enter the Game of Thrones yeah, shock yeah. value style of writing, which is, as we saw, will only carry you so far until the balloon bursts under its own uh, empty, weightless air. Mysteries aren't as strong if you don't have a good theme or mm. a good framework around it to make the revelation itself matter. Mm. Like people want people want answers to questions, mm. but the reason for the questions should mm. be as important as the answers. Yeah. And and I say this without wishing to encourage people to suddenly go around spoiling everything for everyone. No, of course not. I think that those surprises 
can be really special moments and people should be allowed to have those. Mm. I just say it so that you shouldn't feel as if your story has to have some moment that can really only happen once Mm -hmm. for it to be successful because then if you believe in that then you just go for it once and then you never think about it again and I think we're long past the point where films were such frivolous entertainment that we view them as such they Mm. have to hold up over repeat viewings that's why films have grown and developed in complexity even films that once upon a time were viewed as frivolous and disposable like so much popcorn our blockbusters have character and depth well a good portion of them do uh, not all that's always the rule but uh, the best plot twists are the ones that can invoke the same feeling in you every single time you recapture mm. that moment like a hammer suddenly being picked up off the ground mm. it's not about delivering the twist to the audience as much as ultimately everything in the story is actually technically for the audience it should be for the characters in there Mm. because if you properly structure it and it becomes this thing that changes everything that the characters understand about the situation they're in or the world they live in or the life they've led in some way and it doesn't have to be a dramatic complete upheaval of everything about their world it Mm. can be something very small but if it's just something that takes them aback then you can revisit that because every time you go through the story you revisit the current emotions and motivations of the characters as they progress through the narrative and then you can feel the character's surprise every time you may not have that surprise but the story isn't about that it's about experiencing and going through those emotions again and again and seeing through them from different angles depending on the moments of your life that you come back to this story at. That's why I don't think it's necessarily important that we, the audience, go in with a blank slate every time we watch it. It's actually better for us to go with more and more of the pieces so that we can just pick it apart like a expertly crafted watch and... Mm marvel at the components that make it tick. All of this was a fairly long-winded way of saying that empathy is pretty cool, actually, and that a good story works best when you are able to lose yourself in it. This is what the whole concept of suspension of disbelief is about. We, as the audience, are pretending to believe that what is happening in the story is real. And the better the narrative voice of the story the easier it is for us to empathize with the characters in the situations in the story. If that feels like an unusual note to end this week's episode on, then buckle your seatbelt for the next one, because as much as we talk about the rest of chapters 15 and 16, we're also going to be ducking and weaving all around off the path I originally constructed for us. Thanks for sticking with us as I try to get us back on schedule, and we'll see you next time on another trip through the window.